0: Welcome to part two of our harm reduction and decriminalization series, where today we'll be talking about advocacy in law school and specifically Hard Law as an organization, and then the three ninety kind one of e self guided study, uh, which is related to that work. So it would be great if we could first, for this roundtable, kind of go around and everyone introduce themselves individually, and then kind of what Hard Law is as an organization.
1: Yeah, I'm Declan McGovern. Uh, I'm in my third year, last semester here at uh, UVic.
2: My name's Sean Price. I'm also in my third year, also in my last semester here at UVic.
3: My name's Katie Curry. I'm also in my third year and my last semester here at UVic. Hillary Mutch, also the
4: same 3L at UVic.
5: My name's James Mager. I'm in my second year at UVic.
4: Well, Katie and I thought to start Hard Law in the summer of 2021, and we, we both were really interested in these issues, and, and we just felt like there was no real space at, at the time at the UVic Law campus to, to talk about them.
3: Yeah, I think when I came to law school, harm reduction and decrim was like the main reason I came to law school was to learn about what my role could be in that movement and to use the law as like a set of tools. And definitely like there was absolutely nothing in the curriculum that gave me the answers I was looking for, and there was no student organizing taking place around it on campus. So I think both Hillary and I am really grateful that i managed to connect with at least one other person who shared those passions, and we both sort of like looked at that gap and thought, what can we what can we do?
4: Yeah, we both felt like the toxic drug crisis had touched our lives in different ways, whether it was through losing friends to toxic drug poisoning or using drugs or being in recovery. And we had an inkling that other people in our community would also have that same connection. And, and so we really, it was, it was both sort of personal and a sort of broader goal for us. So we started the club and everyone was really interested.
3: Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like I think when we both... When we talked about starting it, 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 like we didn't take ourselves very seriously. And we thought that it was just going to be the friends that we could rope into coming to meetings. And when we sort of announced ourselves as a club and showed up at Clubs Day last year, we had 50 people sign up on the first day of Clubs Day. And I think that's been really cool to see the level of excitement that um, students have around this issue um, and particularly shows like what a big gap um, there was at UVic that, um, you know, this many students are passionate about this issue too. And they didn't have like a forum for that before.
4: And everyone brought their own different approaches and takes to the club. And so it became so much more than just, you know, what Katie and I's brainchild was and our like, silly emails and events that we planned at the start. It became people adding their lived experience uh, as harm reduction workers or drug users or people interacting with these systems. So that was really incredible too. And we were able to have you know, some events where we built her knowledge um, and, but we wanted to build her knowledge further too. And I think that's where the 391E project, this project that we're doing comes in.
0: Right. And so just kind of talking about hard law as an organization itself right now, obviously even when we're talking about harm reduction and decriminalization, there are incredibly divergent views on the best ways to approach these issues. And so what kind of values or ideas do you have as an organization that, that unites this group uh, towards this shared cause?
4: It's a great question. I don't want to say that everyone in the group is coming from, like I said, the exact same perspective, but I think we are all on board with this idea that systemic discrimination against people who use drugs also interacts with other forms of oppression and marginalization. And, and we really want to focus on you know, drug users who are racialized, who are low income, indigenous, poor, queer, living with disabilities, who are actually most affected by the war on drugs. And that's the way we want to frame it—that it is a war on drugs, and that this system is actually structured to punish people who use drugs, and uh, consider drug use as immoral and unhealthy, and and that's criminalization. But we can also see that across a lot of other areas in the law and and in society, whether it's employment, education, healthcare, child welfare. So, I think as a group, we can all get behind uh, interrogating criminalization and prohibition in itself, and questioning how it upholds these uh, systems of power.
3: Yeah, I would just add one other thing that unifies us all is the sense of urgency around this issue and just how quickly people are dying and how many people are dying and what little is being done. And um, I think all of us really feel that uh, whatever action is going to be taken needs to happen right away.
0: Right, and so obviously as law students and as future lawyers, you are kind of occupying this unique space with somewhat unique constraints as to the advocacy that you can do. Where do you see your role within this space, both currently as law students and then in the future as, as lawyers? Yeah, and
1: that's that's a question that we grapple with a lot, we talk about a lot. Uh, the answer is a bit nebulous. Um, and I the first thing I would say is Uh, the role of lawyers is limited in a lot of ways. The lawyers are not going to solve the toxic drug crisis by themselves. Lawyers aren't able to get people access to affordable housing. Lawyers aren't able to build affordable housing. But I think lawyers, obviously, are able to change the law or agitate for legal reform or as we move forward in our careers and our, our generation and our peers become people that are involved in, in making those higher level decisions in our in our society. These conversations that we're having now about harm reduction and decriminalization principles are hopefully conversations that we will look back on. And uh, so, so the role of lawyers, I think, is to move away from the old tools of prohibition, incarceration, and crackdown on drugs, and move towards the new tools of harm reduction and decriminalization and liberation of drug users as we move forward into our own practices whether uh, you know I'm personally interested in in criminal law others are interested in family law or whatever legal area we'll we'll get into taking these principles and using them in our in our practice if we're representing a client who is facing charges related to drug use or drug uh, drug trafficking or, or whatever it may be Speaking about these harm reduction principles to the judge, and uh, you know, pressuring for legal change within the system, within a courtroom, and also in just knowledge building areas like this, like this podcast and like this hard lock club and just moving out into the world.
4: And I think like to add on, this really links back to a guiding value of ours is that we recognize being able to go to law school, having those resources, having an undergrad, taking the LSAT, being able to you know, finance yourself through this process is a very privileged and powerful position to be in. And when we finish with this process, we are in positions of power. So a big piece, I think, that involved in the group is acknowledging our positionality as law students and as future lawyers and, and recognizing uh, where we need to take a step back and elevate the voices of the people who use drugs that are the most marginalized. Um, seeing our role, like Declan put it, it's limited, but seeing our role, like when Insight came around and there was you know a challenge to Harper revoking the Section 56 exemption, lawyers were there. And so we wanna be able to be there in that in those
3: moments. Particularly, I think, as law students versus lawyers, we have sort of, like, a different role in the movement, and I think that's, like, we're not bound by the law society at this stage. I'm thinking particularly of, like, the zines that I've been making, which we we can, like, share information. We have this, like, information-sharing ability that's, like, not bound by the law society rules, and I think that's, like, really interesting and important. I think there's a different place that law students occupy in this, like... Space, which is more of like an advocacy, or it's just a yeah. different advocacy
4: role. As, like, we all know, lawyers can't engage in, so to speak, civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. And that's just an interesting concept to play with.
0: So, to that point, what are some of the projects that Hard Law has undertaken thus far?
3: The zines, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been making zines which serve an information sharing purpose. Zines are a really, really cool way to share knowledge, particularly in community, because they can be really accessible and they're easy to share. So we've been working on sort of like translating ideas into zine formats that we can share with, with anyone. Um, we've made a safe supply zine, which was to go along with totes that we made, just sort of like advocating for safe supply and what Hard Law's perspective is on why safe supply is a necessary element of fighting the toxic drug crisis we also have another zine on the good samaritan drug overdose act and that i think is a really cool zine for showing what skills law students have which is like we can we can learn about the law and we can talk about the law in a way that is more accessible. You've got lots of stuff in the works.
4: I think our approach at the start is like we are new coming back to our position as law students. We didn't, we wanted to be really uh, respectful and intentional in making our connections with community and then seeing the places that where we could work with different folks who are doing really um, incredible work around harm reduction um, strategically. And so we started with having an event sort of in March of last year to introduce ourselves to the community and Um, to bring ideas and to share sort of food and knowledge and and perspectives together. And then now we've sort of been Gradually, uh, seeing where we can make those connections through a bunch of different initiatives that'll, that that uh, people are working on in different capacities.
3: Um, the zines are an interesting example of that sort of like an action. Like we made this safe supply zine, which I think when it was written was sort of targeted at the law student audience of educating law students on what safe supply is and why we should be advocating for it. But when we shared it with our community partners, some of the feedback that we got was okay but how do i access it like what is the practical like okay here's this great idea how can we actually access safe supply where where do we get it and i think that's been one of the really really cool things about this sort of like iterative process with community is like okay um how can we serve our community with these skills that we have
0: right and so i know a number of you have built upon this by turning this into uh, a 391 e-course self-guided study what can you tell me about what that entails and how it got started?
3: All Michelle Lawrence. Yeah, she came to us. Um, she's always been a really big supporter of Hard Law as a club. Um, and she came to us and said, You folks need a more meaningful vehicle for the work that you're doing, and you should be getting course credit for this. And we have this awesome thing in the law school called the 391E that not a lot of students know about. And I think Hard Law would be perfect. For it, um, and so she sort of met with all of us, broke down what we needed to do, did what she needed to do on her end. Um, she advocated for us with the administration, with Professor Newcomb, why we should be able to do this group project. And of course, she's been like the supervising professor who guides a lot of the work that we do.
4: She's also great because she's been very supportive and and sort of very reflective when we have. Things to offer her in terms of material but she also really recognizes that this is like our own initiative and has been balancing sort of giving us the space to be self-directed and, and design what what the the format of the course is while also being available and attending some of our meetings and providing that structure so it's just been really great to have her provide that container and for us to work together to determine what it looks like.
1: She's also just an incredible source of knowledge. Uh, she has, spoken to the senate about uh these these issues um i think as recently as like december and i know whenever i am encountering either a a roadblock in my research or i'm wanting some some guidance in in my research she uh she knows where to look and she knows probably what the case is going to say but you should go look at it anyway just to be safe and yeah, she's she's just uh, very, very knowledgeable.
3: And she believes in us. She mm-hmm. really believes in us. Like, I remember at a certain point in my writing process for my major paper, I had sort of come to the end of the research portion, and I had really been parroting other people's ideas. And she said, this is the time for you to find your own voice. Like, you have to make an argument based on what you believe. What, what do you believe about these ideas? And she's like, get angry. Get really angry. I know you care about this, and and your voice is one that deserves to be heard. And I think that was a really like weird and scary experience for me because I don't believe in the credibility of my own voice and, and ideas. But uh, but Michelle did, and yeah, that's just amazing.
5: The 391E is an experiential group study. So we took current club members and people just generally interested in the subject got together. And planned out what is still a work in progress, but will eventually be a formal publication of our work, as well as borrowing from other scholarship and people with lived experience to talk about harm reduction and decriminalization broadly. And then each person involved has a has a specific role, both on the sort of administrative side as well as the publication side when it comes to producing content and media. And just to bridge what Katie and Hillary and Declan have all said about sort of our role. You know, advocacy might not be heard in the courtroom while you're a law student, but it can be heard in other mediums and other other methods. So that's what we're using 391E to do, basically to borrow from Sean's expression, use it as a vehicle for change, right? So we're given this opportunity to invent our own curriculum out of really thin air and do with it what we will. And the result, we hope, will be something that's accessible to not only other law students and scholars, but people who have experience in this area, either working in it or obviously suffering from it. Uh, The really unfortunate thing is how ubiquitous the toxic drug crisis is and its effects that, you know, we may think that we're somehow immune from the the negative consequences as, as pretty privileged people, but we obviously are not. And that's something that really comes out through all of our meetings. So... We want to make something that's broadly accessible, relevant, pushing the the envelope of what maybe is considered conventional scholarship, and to come out the other side with something that's that's not only you know something we're proud of, but valuable and perhaps like you know without speaking too grandly, able to affect some sort of change.
0: So obviously, there's significant flexibility in in what you could potentially do within this course. So how has that turned out, and what are each of the projects that? That you've been working on within this course.
1: Yeah. So, in addition to just our our weekly meetings where we have interesting conversations and we bring up uh, uh, sort of different facets of this of this topic, have some guest speakers and things like that. I'm working on uh, a paper looking at the the law around confessions and when things that people say to police how those statements can be used against them in court and uh, I'm still in the, I think I've passed the early stages of my research but I'm at the mid stages of my research now and what I'm, I'm realizing is these, the way the Canadian criminal law handles statements that people accused of a crime or even people who are not yet accused of a crime, statements that they make to police when they're used against them in court, obviously it's going to be quite, quite damning for that person if they're, they're charged uh, charged with a crime. And as, as I'm looking at this, this angle of how people who use drugs or people who may be in withdrawal during the time that they're uh, in police custody and ha- going through this police interrogation, the, the law doesn't, in my opinion, adequately protect uh, these, these people. And uh, so I'm surveying the the law around, yeah, confessions and, and statements that people make to police and the, the circumstances in which they make them and how people who use drugs will navigate that legal minefield.
2: I'm writing uh, a paper currently as a 399 paper, so I'm not technically part of the, uh, the experiential learning course, but I think that's one of the cool things about it is that... Uh, because of the flexibility of how the, the course works, students like myself and a couple others can write a major paper or, uh, in my case, a smaller paper, just exploring an area of drug criminalization, harm reduction that we're interested in. Uh, so in my case, I was interested in uh, Section 56 exemptions under the Controlled Drug and Substance Act, tracing the history of, of when this provision was added to or, or, or what the purposes of it were when it was added to the controlled drugs and Substances Act when that came into force and looking at how it's been used dating back to the 90s uh, to provide exemptions for people at first to use and possess marijuana for marijuana for medical purposes up until yesterday or maybe the day before yesterday I think when the new changes uh, came into effect with a a broad exemption granted to possess up to two and a half grams of uh, of certain drugs uh, that in the 90s we would never have anticipated would fall under one of these exemptions so looking at how that has developed and what advocates have been doing along the way which i think intersects a bit with what declan was talking about the role of lawyers uh, and there is an advocacy there is advocacy there historically people that were doing this work making constitutional charter rights challenges to uh, our system of drug criminalization decades ago. So it's easy, it's easy to feel a bit like we're, that it's never been worse, and, and in some ways it hasn't, uh, but there is a lot of, there are there are a lot of people who have come before us that, that have done research and work and advocacy on this. Uh, so just trying to capture a bit of that and communicate it.
3: So last semester I was in both the 391E and wrote my major paper as a 399 for the Hard Law Project. Um, As part of the 391E, obviously, I was involved with all the weekly meetings and um, sort of getting the project up and running. But I also uh, created those two zines, which I talked about um, earlier as my contribution to that project. My major paper was on the Plain View Doctrine and it was uh, originally going to be about putting a harm reduction lens on the plain view doctrine Um, the plain view doctrine is a police power police search and seizure power where police officers can if they are in lawful execution of their duty they see something contraband in air quotes, in their plain view, they have the power to seize it. Um, So my suspicion was that under the plain view doctrine, police were seizing drugs and harm reduction supplies, often using just their discretion to determine when they could do that. Um, And there's a lot of research coming out of community um, that Pivot Legal Society does saying that people are having their drugs taken and having their harm reduction supplies taken and police officers are citing the plain view doctrine as their authority to do so. And uh, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine the consequences for a person who uses drugs to have their drugs or harm reduction supplies taken from them. And what this paper ended up being about was about discretion and discretion in the hands of police discretion in the hands of prosecutors and discretion in the hands of judges. What I found was that none of these experiences that community members were telling us were were happening with police were showing up in the case law. So if case law doesn't exist, then there's no way for a person to know how the law is going to be applied to them. There's basically no guidance on how the plain view doctrine might apply to somebody who uses drugs or has harm reduction supplies on them. That was a very big problem, in, in my opinion. The paper kind of problematizes that. It doesn't really come down <laughs> uh, on either side of whether discretion is good or bad, but ultimately that discretion is unknowable and can be arbitrary at times.
4: I'm uh, working on um, the project and a major paper this term. Uh, for the project, I'm really excited to sort of gather some of the conversations and the materials that we've been reading for our weekly meetings together and hopefully build sort of a building block outline for lesson plans or some sort of kind of one 101 for law students on the relationship between drug policy and the law. Um, and we've been having some really incredible dis- discussions uh, as a group and, and that kind of shows this collaboration and uh, meeting of the minds and, and building the viewpoints that hopefully will turn into something cool. So that's where the project and then my major paper uh, is co- sort of asking about the relationship between criminalization and medicalization in Canadian drug policy Um, at the press conference at the beginning of February, the sort of phrase substance use is a public health crisis or public health issue was thrown around a lot. And I'm just curious about that as a sentence and what it means, because you know, people have been using substances, many different substances, for hundreds of thousands of years. And I, I have a suspicion that both the medical system and the criminal system operates as a uh, mechanism of social control for people who use drugs. and. And not just all people who use drugs, but particularly those who are more marginalized, you know, folks who are racialized, uh, indigenous people, sex workers, queer people. And so I just sort of want to track what these mechanisms of social control look like, what the relationship between those two systems are, how that shows up in our case law and in practice, and then just sort of analyze what it means and what does that look like to see substance use as a public health issue and, and whether we can imagine an alternative beyond both the criminal law and the medical system?
5: There are a handful of us who aren't writing major papers and who are mostly involved in administrative matters because obviously a self-directed course requires a lot of organization, scheduling, communication, and the labor is distributed among all group members, but then there are distinct roles. So myself, Matthew Cumblidge, and Madison Talene are involved in submissions and editing, so we're taking the beautiful, Uh, well-crafted legal scholarship and ensuring that it conforms not only to our group's values, but also to the communication standards that we set out in sort of a guiding document. And that basically means, are we producing something that isn't behind the, the sort of impenetrable veil of legalese and most of the writing that actually gets produced in law school? which is just unfortunately inaccessible to a broader audience and not because it's too smart, but just because it's uh, nothing anyone wants to read. So we're (laughs) making something that frankly is just a bit more pleasant, we would hope. And fortunately, all the writers already have, you know, an eloquent and articulate way of describing all these issues. And now it's just a a matter of, well, what's best for the reader? So additionally, we, we want to... Ensure that the publication is not constrained to sort of conventional mediums. So, Zelona and Hanson Pastron is working on a website with another member of the Hard Law team, Elaine, to ensure that we have a digital copy of uh, whatever we finally, whatever the finished product looks like. Christian Pollock and Madison Tallinn have also been involved with community engagement, which is a sort of essential component of 391E for us, as well as Hard Law generally.
4: When we first started Hard Law in general, we felt that it was really important to share knowledge with the community and and the extension of that sharing knowledge means that uh, for for him with the project, he's updating our community uh, contacts, he's working with them in different ways based on the knowledge that we're gaining from this project, Um, but also just providing sort of uh, regular update emails about exactly what we're doing and trying to engage with them in terms of, you know, what they might need or, or what, like Katie said with the zine, like what materials might really help them in, in the harm reduction work they're doing. So that's a big part of our project as well that Christian's been assisting with for the whole year.
5: Um, something that everyone in the group is doing is investing in something that people call community and practice, which is really learning and doing as a group the things that we, you know, want to see in the future, hopefully, but also just don't know a lot about. And, and we have to Caveat all we're saying today with the fact that we're still students. This is very new territory and we don't claim to have all the answers. So what we do on a weekly basis with our discussions and with bringing in guest speakers is develop our own knowledge and tools and skills that we can hopefully apply one day. But the reality is this is still a developmental process and we're not an authoritative source yet. What we are is just a group trying to do some good work learn together and hopefully exercise some goodwill in the future.
0: So kind of with this work and with decriminalization in BC obviously I don't want to rehash too much about what we've just talked about in the last episode but either with respect to your work and your research or just kind of the movement much more generally where are we going or really where should we be going?
5: Well I can speak a little bit to the club. On January 31st, we tabled in the Fraser building, the main law building, as well as the student union building on the UVic campus, and spent the entire day having discussions with people who range from, I would argue, quite strongly opposed to the decriminalization efforts and exemptions that were being um, implemented that day, to broadly supportive, but maybe um, unsure about the specifics. And what hard law has been able to accomplish, even on this very small scale, is to just open the conversation up to people who obviously have a diversity of views but are willing to talk about it. So, predicting the future is not something that I feel qualified to do, but I can know I can tell you that in the present, the conversations that have come out of the club itself and just the fact that there is progress in this area seem very promising. Even even adversarial conversations still arrive at some point of maybe common ground, or at the very least, like a diplomatic relationship where we don't have to be seen as transgressing something and being deviant, but rather staking our stating our position and having a pretty strong argument for why it might be effective. And whether or not that pans out, we'll see. But at the moment, we're really just putting our position out there and trying to start the conversation.
2: And the, the thing that I really hope continues and and that I definitely think will continue is using 391E and the club to facilitate people like me who uh, I didn't know really anything about harm reduction decriminalization I moved to BC for the first time really just before law school uh, taking people like that who see the suffering that's kind of feels like it's like everywhere now and it was shocking to me when I when I first moved here uh, people that want to learn more and as law students people that want to do something more or even just learn because I think that's a big that's a big part of just engaging with with our democratic government and engaging with other people in, in a respectful way about these issues is just learning about it and giving them an opportunity to do that Uh, and in my case that's writing a paper about it that's attending meetings and talking to people that know way more about it than me Uh, and i think it's been a a really rewarding part of my law school experience so far and and i'm really excited because there's a bunch of 2l's and and first-year students even that are that also came to law school with with similar motivations uh and and goals who are i know will be here next year Probably and hopefully facilitating a similar course experience, uh, building like a little body almost of almost community focused writing and thinking about this, uh, surveying what's going on and and piping that into the Fraser building and into the uh, into the law school community, uh, because I think it's been a really beneficial thing.
1: The other thing I would just add to that is I think the work we're producing, the conversations we're having can can go beyond the Fraser building can go beyond our our law school it's great that they happen here and um, but in, al- already, we the, some of the papers that have already been written are showing up in the provincial, BC Provincial Crown Office, and yeah. So just that our ability to to learn and share what we've learned and what we're we're discussing with uh, the wider world, with currently practicing lawyers, with uh, you know the Crown Office, with defense lawyers, with and outside of the legal realm as well, with just our our friends is is, I think, powerful and important.
4: Yeah, and I think to add, like, this work was also done in, in memory and in recognition of people who lost, lost their lives uh, and lost a lot to the drug war, uh, and that we constantly want to keep those people in our frame of mind, you know, moving forward in the future, whether it's decriminalization, whether, you know, we start to break down this toxic drug supply. Uh, we want to assist with that, but we also want to kind of keep in mind the people that have experienced the most harm, and you know, really try to break down and question some of the attitudes towards uh, substance users, you know, people who are unhoused, um, people who are the most impacted by this this drug war. As we move into practice, you know, building hopefully more compassionate, more kind, more community oriented, and people centered lawyers and, and legal professionals.
0: And so now that this program has been established. What are the ways that future students can get involved?
1: Email Andrew
4: Newcomb. (laughs) I don't think we really know what that looks like. We want, we envision continuity for this. I think it almost needs continuity in some way. So if you are a first or second year law student at, at UVIC, uh, please next year please uh, you know reach out to us, ask questions and, and we really hope that this can be a living a living publication and a living project that continues to develop and grow as different perspectives and lived experiences and academic insights are added. So, yeah we we really for the future we want we want this to keep going we don't we don't want it to end and maybe one day we can you know envision a
3: whole course in itself um,
4: to be taught around these issues
3: I think we're also building institutional capacity for it to have longevity like um, in things as simple as really organized google drives so you can see where and what we've been doing and how we've been doing it but also through more guiding documents like we have a vision and values document which is sort of like become the hard law manifesto um, which we hope that future students can read and um, implement and improve on and take it from there
0: right i mean that's absolutely so crucially important something else that comes to mind is perhaps how much we do still kind of live in a bubble here than fraser and, and the uvic community and sometimes fail to recognize how controversial some of the ideas that that are relatively mainstream here are within Canada as a whole. And so for the broader population, what are some of the key arguments for the decriminalization of drugs as a tool for harm reduction?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I think criminalization creates a lot of conditions for people. I mean, there's There's things we can talk about, like fear of of the police and fear of arrest leading to, you know, more socially isolated substance use. We can talk about how criminalization just as a system in itself drives the toxic supply and is the reason why fentanyl is in in such high doses now in, in the drug supply. We can talk about bail conditions and how, you know, when someone is arrested, whether they're trafficking or whether there's personal possession often the conditions on them are, are, and the incarceration in itself, is perpetuating some of the issues that they're already experiencing in their lives. There's just a whole facet of reasons why criminalization in itself um, creates, you know, feeds into the drug war, feeds into the toxic drug crisis, and creates um, harm for people who use drugs.
2: And even if you don't think drugs are good, and you don't like the idea of a lot of people using drugs, uh, it's really clear that criminalization doesn't stop that. And it just causes a ton of harm to people. So decriminalization and harm reduction movements are are kind of, in my mind at least, and there's no universal probably agreement about this either, but, but start from that point where we all agree that the war on drugs hasn't actually worked regardless of how you morally view drugs and so we start from a different position where where we have kind of a more relational approach to addiction and, and one that kind of just prioritizes people's health and well-being and autonomy throughout the whole process whether they abstain from drugs completely or whether they use drugs and just affording people that dignity and even yeah even if you don't like the idea of people uh, using drugs, it, it's clear it's abundantly clear to me that we we're in a world right now where there aren't sufficient resources even for people to make that decision for themselves uh, if they want that. So it's just about addressing kind of a an emergency. Uh, people dying all the time and, and just saying we need to do something different uh, right now. And I think there's a really strong argument for that without even agreeing on on e- even some of the kind of building block moral uh, lenses through which you can view drugs.
4: Yeah, I mean, people have been using drugs in different ways for different reasons for thousands and thousands of years. And criminalizing and stigmatizing substance use, it, it's shown, I think, time and time again to have poor health outcomes and the more that we um give people respect and personal autonomy and decision making and how they use and if they want to use or not if they want to seek treatment if they don't want to the more you'll actually see more positive outcomes you know and having a community-minded approach i think recognizes that we we want to see everyone do better and 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 to have autonomy in our society so and there's just like there's so many different angles that you can look at it from
0: yeah i mean it's interesting being an american citizen and having spent five years down in California, just how different the conversations surrounding drugs, decriminalization, and harm reduction are between Canada and the United States. I mean, in Vancouver, the last mayoral race here, every single candidate had some form of harm reduction policy. I mean, some were also advocating for hundreds of more cops, but everyone had something whereas in California, ostensibly the most Democratic state, but Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor, vetoed a bill that would have allowed for safe injection sites in a number of major cities within California that are also facing the toxic drug crisis. And so when we're having this conversation, the discussion surrounding these issues between the two countries right now is just worlds apart.
2: Yeah, I grew up in Kansas, and right now if I went to Kansas and bought like five grams of weed, but you could buy it like from an iPad in downtown Vancouver, uh, you could, I, I could go to jail. And, and to me, the, the thing that was shocking, or the thing I guess that I realized when I moved to Canada and I, and I saw how, how different it is here, I guess, in some regards, is that these social attitudes towards drugs are kind of the self-perpetuating system that we have when, when they're illegal. People say, well, it's illegal, so it's bad. There, you'd find, I think, not that many people who are thinking about it too much harder than that, really. It's illegal. I've never tried it because it's illegal. I don't know much about it. So it must be bad and really our society is just better off if we push that to this place where, where it's illegal and, and seedy and bad. And those are all kind of conditioned responses, I think, to, to a system of criminalization. And, and you can dismantle that a bit and get to where we are here and there's so much more to be done in, 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 into the future.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you all so much for coming in and having this discussion. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you all. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think we got to cover a lot of cool things today. And additionally, I just wanted to thank you all for the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly important, so thank you. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Thanks, sorry. <laughs> <Take
1: diseases. laughs> Thanks,
0: Thank you all so much for listening. Please join us next week for an extra special episode where Cassidy and I interview Supreme Court Justice Michelle Abansawan.